When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, and welcome to a new podcast, The Paddock and the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. Welcome back, Josh, to the Paddock and the Pavilion. In part two, we're going to chat about your own very varied career in racing. Am I right to say you have a TV technician and a deputy head to thank? (laughs) You've been doing your homework. Um, Yes, I do in terms of um, fueling my passion, I suppose, whilst still in school. Um, the only other non-white within my school was a, a Rastafarian television technician who had a telephone Labrooks account and a room obviously full of TVs. So during the Cheltenham Festival, I would go to registration and sign in and then sneak off and sit in his room all afternoon and we'd be punting our 10, 5, 10 and 20p's and 50p's away on, the, on that afternoon's rating. I was caught once by my deputy headmaster, who was the hardest man you've ever met. His surname was even, it was Mr. Payne, it's called Mike Payne. Um, and I thought that my days were numbered uh, when I got caught sat here punting away and actually sat down, joined us and asked us what, he had in, what we had in the next. And it was Desert Orchid's Gold Cup. So there you go. Oh, so it's Desert Orchid beating Yahoo in about 1989. We're working out your age now. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, and yeah, do you no. still keep in touch with the deputy head? And uh... I do. I, um, he's, he was 80 only uh, a couple of months ago. I take him racing uh, every, every all the time. Most, he gets a ticket to the Cheltenham Festival every year. Um, he still lives in the same village. Um, I actually do really like the guy, and we play golf when we can. Um, fortunately, he's, he's had cancer over these last couple of years, but I'm delighted to say he swung his first club in anger Uh, a couple of weeks ago and I'm looking forward to at some point this summer going up and seeing him again. Oh, that's good to hear. So let him letting you watch Cheltenham, he now gets Cheltenham tickets out of it. So he thinks it's quite a fair deal that he's had sort of 20 years of club tickets to Cheltenham for, for letting me off one bollocking. Yeah. Well, you left school at 16 and you went to work for Martin Pipes. How, how, how far away were you living to Martin Pipes and why Martin Pipes? 
Good question. Um, I was living 230 miles away. I lived up in uh, Nottinghamshire, uh, on the border of Nottinghamshire and Leicestershire. Why Martin Pipe um, is an interesting one because it's got a link to the uh, Yahoo and Desert Orchid. And basically, Simon Sherwood had just uh, stopped training. My dad had said to me, "Where are you going to go? At, where are you going to go and work at 16?" And I said, "Well, Simon's just retired, and I'm going to um, I'm going to write to him, and we can both start together, and off we go." And Dad turned around and he said, "I can see a logic behind that." He turned around to me and he said, um, "Who's the best?" And I said, "Martin Pipe." And he said. Well, write to him. And I said, you can't write to Martin Pine. He said, yes, you can. He said, absolutely, let's write him a letter. So we wrote him a letter and three day, two or three days later, we get a phone call and I remember my mum coming in the, into the living room and saying, uh, Mrs. Pipe's on the phone. And I'm like, yeah, right, because we were a big wind-up family and uh, thinking it's coming on to Trish. And um, picked up the phone and went, hello, taking the absolute mickey. And yes, hello, gosh, it's Mrs. Pipe. And we'd like to come down for an interview. And uh, two days later, I was um, down there. And uh, I remember we drove down. It was a late one to go to my dad was flying. He's a pilot, uh, but an operations director for an airline in based out of Birmingham at the time. And I caught the train. I left afternoon off school, trained to Birmingham. Dad drove down the M5, down to Taunton, got off, had the interview at like seven o'clock in the evening, got off of the job on the spot. And uh, I remember getting up to the top of Pond House Drive and it must have been very random for two um, non-white six-foot fellows getting out of the car and jumping up and down and cuddling each other that their, uh, his son had got his first job. I remember it very clearly. So how long are you, had you wanted to be a jockey then? Uh, well, my strap line should be that I was too short to be a basketball player and too fat to be a jockey. And at six foot, it was probably a bit of a weird one but equally I was a skinny 16 year old so I could get away with riding as an amateur for a few years always knew I was never going to be a professional jockey but I just followed my dream and um, I'm a great believer in passion over paycheck um, as I look at the stuff that I'm doing now in terms of diversity there's no commercial element to it at all it's about passion and uh, excuse me you will um, you will always get further if you follow that route in life paycheck will catch up with you you know you, you'll get there but if you follow your passion um, one, you'll you'll never do a day's work, as they say. And did you ride some winners as well? I did. As as Martin would, if you ask Martin or David, they'll say, yeah, he got bolted off with about 10 times. So yeah, I rode 10 winners in total, but that was across the board from pointing to under rules to uh, America and all sorts of places. And when did you realise that you wouldn't make it as a jockey? Um, I never really... It wasn't the sort of make it as a jockey because I never aimed to be a professional jockey. I wanted to get as many rides as I possibly could. And I didn't really want to be a trainer either, but I loved horse racing and, but didn't quite know what other options. And I think they, I really struggled for a couple of years um, knowing where, where I fitted. Um, and that wasn't on an ethnicity front, just what, you know, it was sort of late teens. The rest of my mates had gone and done A-levels and gone to university. I'd done a year riding in America, which I felt was probably running away from the problem more so than anything else. And I, got, I came back and, and I applied for every job across the board in, in the sort of what I'd say the administrative and commercial side of the sport, the non-riding side of the sport, or the non-yard side of the sport. And the day I didn't get an interview for the 
administration assistant at Market Race and Racecourse, I decided I needed to go and do something myself and um, spent a year working out what that would be. And in um, at age 21, I started my first business, which was called Racing Link, which had a unit that went around to every single, like a large trade stand that went around around every race course, promoting everyone's promotional literature, weirdly. So it was like it had the fiction list for all other race courses. It had horses for sale. It had a £10 free bet for Labrooks. It had trips to the Arc to Triumph for horse racing abroad. So it, it had all, and everything on the unit was free for people to come and pick up. And we derived revenue from people placing their, placing their promotional literature there. So it worked. It washed its face. What I didn't realise is that I met so many people along the way. Every single race course head knew who Josh Appiaffi was. And they knew that he'd turn up two hours before the first. Um, he'd spend an hour putting his stand up. He'd be there two hours after the last. He'd no matter where it was. And he'd put it back, all back in the van. And he'd drive off to the next place while still trying to sell the space, speak to people on the stand. And I think it was, again, it was sharing my passion, um, which you could say... Every job I've done is, is about sharing the passion of horse racing. So reward for racing now, you know, it's got over a million members and it's a multi-million pound business, which is great. But it's about sharing my passion of horse racing and getting more people to enjoy it. So that was where I, I sort of went and did it myself, to be honest with you, and went from there at 21. Well, you filled in a gap for me there. I didn't know all that. But did that then lead to you uh, getting involved with Betfair? Absolutely. So the last, one of my last clients who came on board, um, they were tiny.com, just started. It was the end, the dot-com boom had been over. Um, and I kid you not, my deal was for six months and they wanted, and it was £6,000. Um, and No, sorry, £3,000 for six months. And they said, um, I spoke to this lovely lady on the phone and she said, can we pay you in instalments to help cash flow? And I said, yeah, of course you can. So they paid me, so this is fair, they paid me £500 a month to take their promotional literature around about the exchange. And weirdly, at the end of that six months, foot and mouth hit, I had to close the business down. Um, I had to remortgage my house to make sure we didn't go bankrupt or anything like that. Uh, and then I was in, again, I was sort of like, oh, I've gone and tried it, but it's not worked and all this kind of stuff. And then not so long after, I got this phone call saying there's, a, there's an advert in the Racing Post this coming weekend for the director of horse racing and a, and a head of marketing. Um, would you, would you consider applying? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And the rest I have to say is history then we turned up and there was, you know, 50 odd people down there. And um, I left when there was 1500 and it was the most amazing six years of seeing a business grow. No, there was no book to, to, to read to tell you how to grow a business that quick. And, um, and we made some huge whopping mistakes as well as it being a r- ridiculous uh, success for both, uh, uh, I think, the consumer and for, and for shareholders. And, and you know, we were lucky enough that when you start with a tiny business like that, that they can't afford to pay you the market rate. So you get shares. So I was very lucky to, to get shares at, um, that were 1p. There you go. And um, they turned out to be um, well worth it in the end let's put it that way it means i can go and do some hopefully some good stuff for the industry nowadays you know well credit to you for um uh, taking the path that you did and following passions as you said i think your next move was to be the ceo of the professional jockeys association yeah absolutely it was it was a difficult um one because how do you you know how do you leave betfair when it was it betfair was we were flying along but we'd turned from 
speedboat to Titanic. There was far too many people there. And interestingly, two years after I left, Brion Corcoran came in and, and got rid of about 600 people. So it had just become quite fat, large, political. Uh, and because there were shares involved, people were very conscious of their jobs. And, you know, it, there was a lot of dead wood there that needed clearing out, you know. So it was, it was quite a tough one. And um, my wife said to me, she said, look, is there anything else out there that you would want to do? And I said, I've always fancied the, the jockey's job, the Professional Jockey's Association job. And then she turned around and she went, okay. I said, but no, Michael Caulfield's been in it for years. John Blake's now in it for, uh, been in it for a good few years. It, it comes around like once every 15 years. And I kid you not, 10 days later, there's an advert in the Racing Post for the Chief Executive Jockey's Association. So she's like, there you go. Um, so we applied and, uh, and off we went. Well, you must have been destined to to get that high profile role. What what did um, you consider your key task doing that role? Well, it's a it's a good one. Uh, in terms of the the key part of that role at the PJA, well, it wasn't the PJA; it was the Professional Jockeys Association of Great Britain, um, the JAGB or whatever it was at the, at when I arrived. And again, it was something that I wanted to modernise, so it was more attractive for commercial backing. Um, I realised it was the most dangerous sport in Britain. Um, there's no other sport where you get followed around by an ambulance whilst doing your job. Uh, and they didn't have their own doctor. Um, and I, when asked the question why, uh, to the likes of the Injured Jockeys Fund, it was because no one had put a proper paper together with proper data or that they don't just hand out money, they'd only match fund. And uh, one thing that I've been pretty good at in my time is is getting enough commercial backing to do some some good stuff for the industry. And um, this was a case in point. They, they sort of sent me on my way, probably not expecting to see me again. And two weeks later, I turned up with significant uh, match funding of over six figures plus. And they were like, and a paper written by a doctor, a sports doctor, uh, and off we went. And that was probably the, the main, what I'm most proud of in the short period I was there, because I also realised it was a, it was, it, it is a trade union as such, and that's probably not where my skill set lies. But what I did at the time was to modernise it, bring in a couple of new fresh faces, which I'm delighted to say are still there today. Um, uh, give it a new brand, uh, mission statement, and raise some cash to get them a doctor, and um, and off. And like I say, that's the sort of yeah, I'm proud of the legacy I left over a short period of time. Yeah, it's hard to believe what you just said there. About a doctor, um, we're only talking about 2007 to 2009. We're not talking about the 1970s or something, are we? That's madness, isn't it? And you know, they, they'd started up. You know, we've got physios that just started at the races, which was great. And now it's brilliant. I think it's being taken to a whole new level. Um, there's a lot of work that's being done on jockeys' mental health, as we know at the moment. There's a, there's a short film coming out by Nathan Horrocks later on this year called The Fall. Um, and he'd be a great person to speak to uh, on this. But equally, it's about sports psychology as well, and I think there's mental strength that we need to talk about. Um, yes, you could have Tony McCoy at one arm that's the, the Iron Man, but he freely admits if you read any of his books that you know he, he could be finding, find him in a corner crying his eyes out. You know, doesn't mean he's any less or soft or anything like that. It's just it's a lot of pressure on our sportsmen, and I think it needs talking about a lot more. So I think having a sports psychologist facility for uh, jockeys I know Paul Struthers does a fantastic job there at the PGA now um, but it's definitely on near the top of his uh, wish list in the years to come 
Well, especially the bubbles everyone have been living in for the last 12 months, the effect of people mentally, I think it's going to come through when we do get back to normal as well. Absolutely. But then if you look, you know, they, they were, you know, nutritionally, their, their mindset and their knowledge base is far better. You know, when I was riding, you know, it was, you know, you'd sweat, you wouldn't eat, um, you know, you'd smoke. You know, I was, when I, even when I did the jockey searching job, here you go. So I used to sit on the, what was called the Professional Players Federation. And you'd have the PCA from cricket, you'd have the PFA in football and Gordon Taylor, uh, Gordon Taylor on that. And all, all the other sports. And you'd go around the room at the end after having some keynote speech and you'd talk about whatever you were doing in the next month. And I was the only sports head that turned around and went, I'm trying to sort out a smoking facility for my jockeys at the races in a sports council. It seemed completely ridiculous. And of course, if you go into the jockey's room now, there's hardly any jockeys that smoke whatsoever. But it was uh, it just shows where the sportsman element of being a jockey has massively come forward when you see the likes of Tom Marquand and Holly Doyle now and what they put themselves through to be as fit to do the job as well as they possibly can. And after that you started rewards for racing? Yeah, rewards for racing have been cooking in the tank for a while to be honest with you, but it, you just well, I've also realized you've got to you might have the greatest idea in the world but you've got to make sure that the market's ready for it. Um, and I'm seeing that element as we speak here when I'm trying to promote diversity and inclusion across the sport. You've got to get your market warmed up and ready for it or your your customer base or your audience and back in the mid 2000s when you know I was leaving Betfair I looked at um, something similar to the rewards for racing platform and because it's it was online ticketing based at its core but back in the mid 2000s 20% of tickets were bought online the rest were walk-ups because remember we're no we're not like a Royal Albert Hall or a Wembley with seating capacity there's like five day five meetings a year that are sold out and even then they could just open up another enclosure what we have got in racing which is brilliant is space so you know, that's the kind of thing. So I was like, this is really geared around a transactional database. And uh, that changed over the over the coming five years. So when we actually launched in 2011, it flipped. It was 80% of tickets were being bought online. Now, why did it change? There were two reasons, in my opinion, why it changed. Those stats changed. One was the, uh, the growth of music nights. Uh, and we went from, it used to be, as you know, Newmarket, it was Jules Holland, and they'd have their seven events um, during the summer, and that was it. And then all of a sudden, I think it was like 300 music nights, I think, when we last had a normal year of, uh, of fixtures and meetings. And, and people won't turn up to Jules Holland or UB40 or Tom Jones without a ticket. So, and they're far more used to, to purchasing tickets. So it, it, it drove the marketing that way, and it's far easier to service someone and also to market to them afterwards, of course, if you've got data capture along that purchasing um, journey. So we launched in 2011. Uh, we, we try, typical Josh tried to launch it across, across the board and found out that the politics within the industry was difficult and we wouldn't be able to do that. So we launched, a bit like Nectar did, it launched with Sainsbury's to start off with and then it expanded its sort of partner base out from there. And, and that's what we did. We started with the Jockey Club, then we added York, then we added Ark, and later this year we'll be launching in Ireland, um, which should be, you know, so it's brilliant. We've got a whole new jurisdiction and we've got a team of around uh, 35 to 40 that work in our offices in Burton-on-Trent in the Midlands. Well, you must be proud of that with, over, as you said earlier, over a million million members. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, It's been 
it's been a great success because it's, it's, it's also, like I say, it's again, passion of, of mine, you know, what it's been doing. It's in the last full year of crowds that we had, our members bought 900, over 900,000 tickets. So it's around about a fifth of all tickets come from Rewards Racing members. So it's, it's ever growing. Um, it's a bit, I'm hoping it's going to end up being like, the, you know, the, the rewards programs that you see of, of airlines and the likes, you know, that the airline, the, the rewards program is as big as, as big as the airline in, the, in America in some respects. And I think this is, this has got the potential to, to be it. And, you know, you can use it for, you know, racing TV day passes and subscriptions. You can use it for all sorts of different types of things. And I need, that's why I need to expand it out more, probably the redemption store to keep it all involved in horse racing. Um, part of the 50% of the jockey club brothers syndicate, uh, I'm sure you've seen some of their colors, with their, di- their gold diamonds on their black colours and their syndicates, you can use your points for them. So is it an expansion um, into other elements of the sport, not just ticketing for racing, but actually that it's um, going back into, like I say, it could, it could be multiple ownership, it could be anything really. And now your main role is a Sky Sports racing presenter. Um, I wouldn't say it's my main role. I probably do like five days a month. And, and I was just going to say how many days. Are, well, I put in how many days a week you go. You're racing. You're saying a month. Yeah. Um, I, I think I average out. I think I do about seventy to eighty days a year. Um, I've massively enjoyed it. It was something that came out of the blue. I did. A, I did a summer many moons ago, in I think '07 on Channel 4 um, and where I was the sort of the voice of the weighing room and stuff like that and a couple of me it was, I think it was Glorious Goodwood and, and York and stuff like that and I hated every minute of it because I was ill-prepared um, I'd had no media training and in those and someone asked me the other day what's, what changed within that period of, of sort of 12 years until you took the Sky or agreed to take the Sky role and, and I'd done quite a bit of media training and public speaking and and probably become more confident in your own ability that you can talk about it and you get get far more used to the more you do something the form far more used you get to it and more comfortable you get to it um and then when i was asked over lunch actually at a random place i was in a restaurant in seoul in korea at the asian racing conference um in 2018 um i think it was in the sort of may and said well, I would, but I, what I also wanted was um, a mentor. And I'm delighted to say I've got a few, a few of them at Sky Sports Racing, but the main one was Dermot Comiskey, who watched pretty much everything that I did and said, where are you going right, where are you going? He's got a great technique of telling you where you're going wrong, <laughs> that you still feel positive about it afterwards. Um, but it's the only way you learn. It's the only way you get better. I've still got a long, long way to go but the best thing you could ask. But then I've mean, also got really great friends, one male, one female, both called Alex, which is Alex Hammond and Alex Stedman, who, who are also great. At, they've, been in the, they've done it for years, so you can't... It's like being taught how to ride by Tony McCoy. Do you know what I mean? It's, you're being taught by absolute world high-class standard presenters. And what have I tried to bring? For, I've tried to bring a bit of fun to it because... I think we all get a bit too serious, to be honest with you. There's no laughing and joking. So I have to say, whenever I'm on, I'm always taking the mickey or having a laugh. And um, I'm very happy at taking the mickey out of myself. And I'm very happy at taking the mickey out of the person that stood next to me. So 
I think we do need to smile and have a lot more of a laugh and take it ourselves a lot less seriously on both channels or all three channels that show horse racing. It's not as serious. It's 10 horses running around the field with lots of people enjoying themselves watching it. Let's start there and let's all have a good time rather than getting really far too in-depth and far too serious. You can still talk about stride length. You can still talk about you know, in-depth form you can, and ground and that kind of stuff, but you can still smile while you're doing it and not try and make out that you're a world-leading you know, mathematician scientist that you're talking about. It. You've got to make it um, accessible for, for everyone to digest that kind of information. Well, that's good to hear. It's in, engaging with the audience. And especially one of my next questions was after what's just happened today uh, with Naomi Osaka, um, with people who are questioning and interviewing. Do you think that um, sometimes with young people who then, everyone's not Frankie de Tory, that um, interviewers need to consider, I'm not saying that, that happens in race and doesn't, they don't consider it, but consider the person they are actually interviewing. Hugely so. What, what has happened today with her is, and some of the things I've seen have been horrific. We're talking about someone's mental health here. And if someone struggles with their mental health, the first thing we say, we, should, we need to say is, how are you? Are you getting the support that you need? And we need to make sure that she is in a place where she's safe and, um, and physically, mentally safe and comfortable once there we can then work out what we're going to do i, I have huge respect for her, for doing what she's done in terms of pulling out of the, the larger events now there is the other side of it that is sport is only as big as the promotion it can provide you stop promoting you go nowhere you, the biggest sports are the best promoters of it and they use their participants who earn a lot of money doing it um to promote it as much as possible and but equally, I still think that there is a medical condition that she's struggling with that means that she shouldn't have to do it. So there are ways and means. And I, what I wouldn't want to see is that people use that same excuse just because they can't be bothered. And we have got a good few in racing that can't be bothered, that don't. I had a huge problem when I got to the Jockeys Association. There were some great lads that would um, speak, excuse me, speak to the media. But there were a lot that were just like, you know, and, and it wasn't. We they don't think it's their role. And I'm like, well, it is your role because your role is to promote the sport that's providing you a living and you're the, your horses can't speak. So we need someone to speak, but they never saw it as their job. But I think we've seen with the advent of social media and the new generation, and again, what did I focus on then? I couldn't turn around and change some of the older guys that have been doing it for 20 or 30 years, but I could really work with the younger guys. And I think as you see coming through now, William Buick was uh, champion apprentice when I was um, when I was doing it. He was he could I mean, you know English was his first language, granted, but he was you know he was still shy. But he still was like no problem at all. Gave him some uh, media training, and he's brilliant. James Doyle, absolutely brilliant. And that you can see Tom Marquand, Holly Doyle, they're all people you love putting in front of the camera, and that's because and now the next generation coming through see that's what they do. What I had to do is we had to basically do a circuit a circuit change from the long follow god bless him that wouldn't say victor goose and but even the likes of padre and people like that who were amazing riders they but they weren't media savvy because it wasn't part of their role it was to keep quiet really and do a job i'm just here to ride a horse fortunately we can't afford as a sport now for people to just say i'm here to train or i'm here to ride and i'm only staying silo we've got to think about the whole industry yeah, it's all about engagement. 
the British Racing School, they have media training on their nine-week course, don't they? Yeah, from the they very do. start. Yeah. It's, 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 it's hugely important for everybody, you know. Um, it's some of the, you know, the Yashin Murphy videos that he was doing on his way back from the races, just saying, you know, I did the, it, they were so engaging and it's just him recording it. Having the confidence to do that. Can you imagine a jockey 20 years ago doing that and getting it posted? Well, probably because you wouldn't have mobile phones. But in, in the early 2000s when we did, it's just it, there's been a whole change of, of um, focus. They obviously feel a lot more comfortable with it because they've grown up with it, which means you know it's only going to get bigger and better. One of them will, will start having their own podcast soon, and then you'll be in trouble, Stephen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh... Yeah, I suppose the one benefit you've got as an interviewer for racing, you're generally interviewing people when they're, they've just won a race, whereas someone like Naomi Osaka is having press conferences sometimes when she's, you know, straight after losing a, a major match, she's got the microphone put right under her nose. Absolutely. Um, and there are a couple of things there that, you know, they need to change what they look like because I'd have, I'd have, I looked at once when I was doing the Jockers Association about bringing centralised contracts in that you like match the day. They have to send out someone to go and do that interview. And if it's not said player, then it's got to be sort of, if it wasn't Alex Ferguson, who I think refused to do it, uh, they would send somebody else. But equally, we've got to look at, you know, did we at a time have to start looking at it? Yes, we did. I think it was Nick Coward and I had had various meetings on it. We decided not to go for it. We decided we'd, you know, we'd, we'd do it a different way of, again, looking at the next generation coming through. I, I do struggle in the fact that um, we don't do enough beforehand, probably, in terms of those interviews. In terms of losers, it is, weirdly, it's all about the winner in most people's eyes in terms of horse racing. Um, in those other sports, if it's only a two-result two sport, such as tennis... Well, then they're naturally going to go and shove it in, in the loser's face. We, we're not a two-result sport. We've, we've got so many other stories around it, be it the horse, the trainer, the jockey, the stable staff, the owner. Whereas here, you're talking about one tennis player. So we've got, we've got enough content around one winner in our sport compared to other sports where it's just about one individual figure. Yeah, I think that's important because really it's sports like tennis and, and golf where it's just there's not quite the team involvement that you've got with all these other sports where you've got other people in your team that you can sort of lean on a bit where they're very much exposed and on their, on their own when they do well or do badly. Exactly. But again, in, in golf, you've got 120 players to start off with 70 odd over the weekend. They don't, even though they video the guy who's come second or the female that's come second, they've won a shed load of cash. Yeah. They're a bit gutted. They've come second, but they were they don't interview the person that shot 92 and shanked it out of the park who's in a complete bad mood. And that's the difference that uh, between when you've only got two people there and so, say someone has had an absolute shocker and then they've still got to go and do that interview. Well, thank you for talking about that. I think um, it's important today after what's happened because I don't think a world-famous tennis player pulls out of a Grand Slam event for no good reason. I think the uh, bravest, uh, bravest performance was sending that notification out far more than any other time. I think it's, it's, it was amazingly brave. Um, and I'm sure she won't be, her management team will make sure that she she doesn't see half the comments that have, those negative, horrible things that have come back. Cause I think the, um, she needs, she needs help. And, um, because equally it's, it's, it's about, it, it's not the press conference is the, is the, is the, is the small element to it. There, you know, there is. It's about dealing with life, and life as 
um, such a high um, public figure as the as, as the star that she is, and she lives in she lives in she lives in that world, and it's a it's a very difficult world, I'm sure. I don't, I don't know. I've not been there, but it wouldn't entertain me living there. I can tell you. No, me neither. And what other jobs has Josh Happy Happy got lined up now uh, for the rest of oh your racing career? I don't suppose you've got any idea where you'll be, you'll be going in the next the different sort of trails you've taken over the last 25, 30 years. I mean, who knows where you'll um, be? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I don't know where I'll be. I'm not, I think I've got a lot of work to do on the diet. I think my calling is the, the, the diversity and inclusion and wellness. One of the things I bought out or campaigned for and, and got through last year was the jockey's recognition badge. Uh, and that was so that any jockey that lost their claim could get a badge that could come back racing again. And it was after... We sadly lost uh, Liam Treadwell and James Banks. James was, he was a friend. He wasn't a close friend, but he'd been to, been to our house a couple of times for dinner and stuff like that. He was, a, he was a great guy. And it really hit us hard. And I was like, well, how, you know, how can we uh, do more for jockeys' mental health? And this one was, when you speak to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, the reason why Alcoholics Anonymous is so successful in terms of changing people's lives is that people are going to share their experiences with other people that are in the same situation. And that was the reason why we wanted to, if people are struggling, if jockeys were struggling with their mental health, that they were going to share it with people who are going through the same thing or, or live in that world. And if you retired the following day, you'd be ringing up a race course to see if you can get a free badge. You're not allowed it. I mean, that's the difference. And it was like, not only have you just stopped your job you've been doing and been dedicating your life towards, you weren't allowed in. And you weren't allowed, a security man would stop you going in the the house, the weighing room that you've been in for your entire career. So it was to work out how we can make it more open and they don't feel sort of cast away out of the industry when they do retire. And um, that was a hugely, you know, I presented it, I came out publicly with me on the TV and I wrote a paper, ran some data and presented to the RCA board, who I'm delighted to say unanimously backed it um, and, we, and we got it through. So I think there's some sort of low-hanging fruits out there that we can a few changes that we can get through for the positive of the industry in terms of what am I going to do? I'm 46 years old. I've decided um, I'm going to give myself to uh, aged 50. I've decided, I told my family the other day, I'm going to have a gap year. I've never, I've I've been working since I was 16 and um, I've I've been to some good sporting events in my time and I'm going to tick a few bucket list items off in my 50th year and perhaps take a back seat for a year before a re-invigorated and re-energised Afi Afi. Look out in uh, 2026 when I come back, probably with dreadlocks. Well, I, I doubt that, but it's a good job uh, the gap year well, wasn't 20... <laughs> it's a good job the uh, gap year wasn't 2020 anyway, so... Uh... <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So now, uh, the next, I see the next four years, rewards racing goes from strength to strength, the launches in Ireland, like I say, later this year. Um, the diversity and inclusion we've got some initiatives that we've been working on uh, including a racing media academy including uh, those showcase days that I've talked about in the, in part one there are some great initiatives working with the likes of the racing school and, and ebony horse clubs and the pony racing association so there's lots of bringing it all together so we can develop this pathway and I think that's over the next Three and a half, four years, that's what I'll work on is developing racing's pathway so that people can, they know how to lock into it. No matter what age you are, we'll take you on that journey so you can become more engaged in our sport, both as a fan 
and as part of the workforce. And I think it's in that is doable. It's tangible that we know if it works or not. Um, and that's where the next generation coming through, we can push through because I think we're massively behind the eight ball when it comes to um, engaging Generation Z, in other words, people that were born after 1995. Well, thank you very much for being on the paddock and the pavilion. You've got a lot to do before your gap year. Uh, so uh, the best of luck. And, uh, you know, uh, please keep ignoring all the, the nasty emails and that you're getting following your excellent documentary about the uncomfortable race because it's not deserved and it's very good to know that you've got a positive attitude and you can continue the campaign to improve diversity in horse racing. Stephen, thank you very much for letting me tell my story. Well, thank you very much as well. Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and now on Instagram at The Pad and Pad. Don't forget, if you like the show, please do leave us a rating and review. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.